Hi, this week we're going to talk about a diary of a country priest. This goes along with my chapter on the contemplative and active life and how those two things go together. And I have with me Chris Smith, who is the editor and founder of Inglewood Review of Books. So Chris, welcome. Uh, do you want to add anything to uh, your bio so people know you? <laughs> uh, thanks, Jessica, for having me. Um, yeah, just really quickly, I'm part of the Inglewood Christian Church community uh, here in the urban Near East side of Indianapolis. Um, so that's kind of uh, important to a lot of the work uh, that I do with the ERB and a lot of, of the other uh, writing and speaking that I do. Yeah, I mean, Inglewood Review of Books just filled a huge gap, especially for all of us who were in love with books and culture. And you just kind of stepped in. I know you, were, you had started before, but you really stepped in um, and supplied a need for the church. So I'm, I'm appreciative of what you do. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think there was just some really good, maybe even providential timing uh, to uh, kind of our, our history over the last, we started in 2008, so wow. uh, over over a dozen years now. Yeah, wow, that's fantastic. Well, congrats on that. I hope more people after this interview will go and, and follow Inglewood and, and hopefully- well, I hope so too, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. So tell me about Diary of a Country Priest. When did you come to read this novel? So I probably read it for the first time uh, right after college. Oh, wow. um, There's a time period uh, because I was uh, during college. I didn't read much uh, outside of what I had to do for classwork, and I didn't didn't I took honors classes, um, but other than that, I didn't uh, take a lot of literature classes. I was a math and computer science major, um, so uh, which is kind of odd uh, uh, twist to where I've ended up now, but. Uh, but yeah, so there was a period of time in the last, in a couple of years after I graduated from college that I was just uh, learning a lot of things and just kind of reading a lot of kind of faith oriented things, probably a lot of uh, church history, but also certainly some kind of classics in the Christian tradition and um, Diary of a Country Priest was, was one of those that I read yeah. uh, for the first time then. And actually probably so I just reread it this past month after you invited me to have this conversation. And I don't know that I had read it at all uh, in between. Oh, wow. uh, uh, so, so it's been a while. And yeah, it was definitely a, a different experience um, uh, reading it now and kind of reading it, we'll say 25 years ago. Can I ask how you found it though? Because it's a rather, I mean, it's a rather obscure text, I think for most people. So um, when I first showed a draft of The Scandal of Holiness to one of my friends, she's like, did you pick the most obscure books you could think of? <laughs> she hadn't heard of a single one of the books in The Scandal of Holiness. So it's got like oh, a wow. cult following, but it's not, it doesn't have like a major popular following. Yeah, I, I mean, and I don't honestly remember exactly how I found it. Yeah. I know that I was reading a lot of things um, related to kind of the contemplative tradition uh, in those first couple of years after college. Uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline in some ways kind of became its own curriculum for me because um, I pretty much tried to read uh, every book that he mentioned uh, in that book, which was a, a wonderful sort of introduction to the Christian tradition and church history uh, because he, had, he is a master of kind of, um, of that uh, sort of history. Uh, so I can't remember if this novel was mentioned there or if it was mentioned in another uh, book that I read um, because it was mentioned by Foster. I can't remember, uh, but it was some, something along those lines. You know, when I, I first found it because of Image, do you remember when Image put out that list of, you know, the hundred books Christians should read? Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. 
It was yeah, only- that was a while back. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was at least 30 years ago. Okay, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, but I remember that became like a curriculum outside of my college curriculum that I wanted to follow. Like I wanted to go through every single one of those books. So for sure. me, I bought it, but then it sat on my shelf forever. Like I, I got this used copy. I actually have like two used copies and it just sat there and never, I never paid attention to it. Um, and then when I finally got around to reading it, it was like, oh, wow. Why, like, why hadn't I read this earlier? Sure. Yeah. It's, there's definitely, um, good reasons that, it, that it's a classic. Yeah. Um, I think though, I, I mean, I will be honest, I, I wasn't quite, uh, it was a little, I was a little less comfortable with it now, uh, than I was, uh, 25 years ago. I could certainly see things that I can see why I appreciated it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, kind of being in a little bit, uh, different, uh, place faith-wise, um, there were some things that just kind of made me raise my eyebrows a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, so tell me what those were, like what, what drew you to it or like, what was your impression 25 years ago? And then now what are your hesitancies? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so in some senses for those that haven't read the novel, in some senses, it's kind of drawing upon for what might be called kind of the literary history of historic individualism. Um, kind of this, uh, I mean, you have this, this priest um, who uh, is a, a saint of sorts uh, in kind of the traditional sense in which that's understood. And, uh, and his parish is uh, much less than kind uh, to him, uh, but yet, uh, and he's, as you find out over the course of the novel, he's uh, uh, practically dying of cancer. Um, and so he's got a lot of things kind of stacked up against him, uh, but uh, is able to uh, kind of find peace and uh, and uh, a pretty deep relationship uh, with with God in spite of in spite of those things. Uh, so that's kind of what I mean by kind of the historic um, our heroic individualism. Um, I mean, again, it's kind of about the same time that Gatsby came out. I mean, just a lot of the the literature of that era. I mean, I mean Camus isn't, The Stranger isn't yeah. uh, exactly historic individualism, <laughs> our heroic individualism, but it's it's definitely very individualistic and kind of fatalistic. I'm less comfortable with that uh, today, uh, and particularly in the ways that we think of saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I kind of the more I read church history and the more I read biographies of saints, they're always kind of products of their times and communities to which they belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think one of the big things uh, in kind of the way that I think about things and the way the the writing that I do is the the importance of the local communities. Um, and of course, uh, in this novel, uh, the local community is uh, is kind of derided. Uh, I mean, not. I mean, they're just kind of, uh, they're derided for, for their boredom <laughs> uh, and they're, they're kind of the, the impediment uh, to uh, the, the faith of, uh, of this priest. So, uh, so yeah, and there's like uh, this passage, uh, maybe about a third of the way through the book where he's talking about prayer. Uh, it's kind of a pretty significant uh, and really eloquent uh, passage where he's kind of describing prayer. And he, he talks about, Kind of the way that in prayer the individual is connected to to the universal humanity mm-hmm. uh, through through Christ, uh, and uh, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But I think what 
what's missing is kind of an erasure of the local community, the, particularly the local congregation, uh, in that uh, sort of uh, depiction of prayer uh, and um, praying uh, with and alongside uh, those uh, who uh, daily uh, form us. Um, so, uh, so anyway, it's that, it's that sort of thing that that I'm a little less comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, kind of thinking of, of I don't read a lot of fiction, honestly. I'm kind of more of a nonfiction uh, sort of person, I mean, even kind of literary uh, in the literary world. But I'll read a lot more more essays and uh, creative memoirs and so forth. Um, but uh, but one of the novels that I've really appreciated recently uh, is uh, James McBride's uh, Deacon King Kong. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that really kind of strikes me about that uh, is just the, the really kind of crucial role that the community plays. It's, it's an, a novel about New York in the 70, early 70s. Um, but the uh, yeah, I won't give too much of that away and we're not here to talk about that. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that um, that's the sort of uh, fiction that uh, is really uh, that I'm drawn toward where they're. Uh, particularly where communities, families, mm -hmm. uh, neighborhoods, uh, churches, maybe even in some cases, um, almost become characters in themselves. Mm -hmm. um, there was a novel a few years back, uh, Angela Flournoy's uh, The Turner House. Um, uh, and the, the family in that book is, it's a, it's a novel about a particular family in Detroit, uh, also kind of in the early to mid 70s, I think. Um, but the family becomes uh, kind of a character of itself. And I, I find that sort of thing uh, really fascinating. Um, so anyway, the social dynamics um, were uh, a little less meaningful to me uh, and kind of uh, a little more unsettling uh, to me than kind of when I read it the first time. I think that was, that's the, uh, the major difference. For me, it's it's fascinating to hear you say that because, of course, one of the trajectories of my book, I mean, the second chapter is the idea that you can't be a saint by yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. The necessity of the community is definitely emphasized. So, for, so when I'm reading this novel, my lens is so much on the priest and his connections to other people mm -hmm. because, you know, when he starts, he's almost, um, like you said, derisive. Like he... He begins, you said boredom. I don't remember exactly what he says, but he said he sounds so negative. He's like, mine is a parish like all the rest. They're all alike. Right? <laughs> yeah. so it's generality in which sure. he doesn't see where he is. And he even says, like, my parish is bored stiff. No other word for it, like so many others. And he has like this negative temperament. And mm -hmm. you feel like if he died right there, <laughs> there would be nothing sanctifying like about his life. But what's interesting is when he learns to engage with the people like even cure de torsi he starts having this relationship with um his failed relationship with the doctor in town right the um the you know the conversation he has with uh the madame you know sure. completely changes her um, and it just seems like all these these people these characters granted none of them are really sanctifying i mean none of them are holy he does stand, mm -hmm. stand out as like the I think he's supposed to stand out as the holiest character. You might disagree right. is, but like, that's what he's supposed to do. And yet the beginning to the end, you see the move to sanctification happens by the necessity 
of stepping outside of his perspective. Like in some sense, these relationships are doing as much work as prayer is doing to transform him. Do you see that or no? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I can see the, the sort of transformation uh, that happens. Um, Cause I mean, imagine like, I, you know, I'm, I'm giving so much away. I can't help it. But like <laughs> when you get to the end of the novel and he's like returning to his old friend, the other priest, you sure. can, and you can imagine if the guy who had started the novel with us, seen his old friend back when he was so condescending by the, you know, he wouldn't have been able to love his friend. There would have been, there just wasn't a lot of charity in him. And I, I feel like one of the things that happens over the course of the novel is just watching this guy have to go from a loner, essentially, to understanding that everyone is imperfect, including himself, right? I mean, he's, I, I don't know, I feel like he has to change his perspective on himself and other people. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that there's an element of, of transformation uh, there. Uh, but, but again, it's, it's, it's personal. <laughs> Uh, yeah. personal uh, transformation. It's a product of the, the kind of time time and place in which it was written. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess that today, almost a century later, not quite a century later, 90 years later or whatever, um, uh, I'm much more interested in kind of a deeper, deeper kind of social dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, I mean, I think that I mean, kind of the the modern trajectory of individualism uh, hasn't served us well, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I so mean, so yeah, I mean, there is there is personal transformation, and and I think that's uh, I mean, why this book has become the sort of albeit not as well known maybe as it should be, <laughs> as we kind of discussed earlier, uh, but the sort of classic that it is uh, is that uh, that uh even this kind of hardened hardened priest um mm -hmm. uh can can be transformed and i mean even the the madame um uh, is transformed pretty powerfully that's kind of one of the it's kind of the climax of the novel so, so to speak um and uh prayer prayer plays a kind of a key role in her transformation kind of her inability to pray mm -hmm. um because of the the grief that she suffered in, in losing her son and kind of alienation from her other members of her family, mm -hmm. um, just kind of frustrated with God or whatever. Um, but kind of through through her friendship and conversations with with our friend the priest, um, kind of uh, experiences her own sort of transformation. Yeah, and I think that I mean that's one of the reasons that I enjoy the novel so much and keep returning to it because, you know, my first book was on, you know, the demonic authority of the autonomous self. So I'm, you know, I'm very antagonistic to the, <laughs> right. Of like the lone sure. individual, um, you know, that kind of hero story I'm not into what I appreciated about this, even though it's a diary is it's showing the necessity of that inwardness, the relationship with God, uh, the contemplative, contemplative life as the source by which we are then able to enter the active life in the community, right? And I think some of the problems that I see, especially as a teacher, you know, I've had classes start where I'll, I'll give them each an index card and I'll say like, write down what is wrong with the world, you know? And, 
inevitably somebody says like, well, what's wrong with it is that we're in here discussing philosophy and we're not. <laughs> And that's what always happens. And so I start saying, well, what do you want to do to change the world? Why? Why is that the best solution? What? And this, I, this drive towards activity apart from prayerful contemplation, I feel like you don't see the problems that you, you know, we're not trying to see with God's eyes. We're trying to see with our own eyes and fix things according to our own measures. And I, I think that's what I love about watching his transformation is he goes from someone who is just lambasting his community for being bored and selfish to someone who has to, at that moment with the madame, see himself, I am just an instrument like that poker that you're using with the fire. I am just that. And God now needs to do something in your life through me. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. To me, that's so powerful about the novel. Sure. Yeah, no, I certainly I'm sympathetic to that. I've made that same argument uh, in a lot of uh, in a lot of other contexts um, that uh, uh, the 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 problem of just kind of of quote unquote just doing something um, that sort of activism uh, without kind of a rootedness uh, in uh, in Christ or in the Christian tradition or in uh, something uh, maybe for others kind of outside of the Christian faith, uh, it's would talk about that rootedness in in other ways, mm-hmm. um, but um, but I guess what what I don't see and and again it's just maybe outside the scope of what Bernanos was trying to do uh, is I mean you don't really see the effects uh, of I mean you see people trans persons transformed uh, but you don't see uh, that's not to say that there might not have been some some kind of social uh, change that happens as a result of this personal transformation, but he kind of leaves it at merely personal transformation. Um, uh, and uh, so so I guess that's something that uh, uh, doesn't completely sit sit well well with me as a reader. Um, but again, like I said, uh, it's probably outside the scope of what what he was trying to do, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, but it, I mean, it's it, part of it is is kind of me in the place di- being in a different place than I was when I first first read the novel mm-hmm. um, years yeah. ago. Well, and Bernanos, I mean, you're right in the sense that the the place doesn't take on a character. He was writing this where didn't he have to? I don't know. I'm not a Bernanos uh, scholar, <laughs> so I remember vaguely <laughs> from reading his biography, but. Um, I, I feel like he had to leave. He had to be, I mean, he essentially chose to be exiled. So he wasn't in France during the occupation because the, the uh, Nazis were moving into France. And so he left to go write this novel. Is that right? I mean, I feel like he, so he's trying to like imagine France as he knows it. And yet he's not there in the midst of the turmoil. When he's yeah, I think that's right. And then he comes back at some point, but I think it's after uh, he's, he's written the novel. Um, I yeah. could be wrong about that. You could see that like, that sense of place 
you know, in some in some ways you're you're right on that like that the place is abstracted from him that he's trying to imagine and get back to. And it's a place that's not even going to exist anymore because of the war. Right? All right, yeah. Yeah, it's a place that's going to be demolished and changed and he's writing about it as it used to be. I mean, there's almost like this this sense of nostalgia even in the approach to that to that parish. Sure. Right. Um, but I was thinking when you were talking about um not liking the lone character. Are you a Wendell Berry fan? I am. Okay. I am. I'm more so his his essays and poetry okay. um, than his fiction. I was gonna uh, ask but, about Jaber Crow, because like that that to me is one of the reasons I don't like Jaber Crow, but I actually like this novel. Do you see the connections or no? Um yes, say a little just a little bit more. So, you know, Jaber Crow, I mean, he's so inward and like even his relationships are inactive, right? Like uh -huh. he chooses not to be active because he thinks he, it's almost like it's supposed to be this like Sidney Carton kind of relationship with the figure that he loves where you, you sacrifice yourself loving that person platonically forever. Um, and in yeah. that sense, it's, it's so disconnected and abstracted and only about what's going on internally for Jaber that I just struggle to connect sure. with the novel. Sure. It, whereas for this, I can feel his passion for the characters, like his sense of pity, his emotional ties to them. I mean, he really does start hurting over them, right? He like, I don't know, the, the visceral responses he has to other people in the community just feel so much more charged to me than- Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, that kind of contrast to, to Jaber Crow, yeah, um, I, I, I think part of it too. Uh, again, this is just kind of personal aesthetics, uh, but the the kind of diary, mm -hmm. uh, sort of genre, uh, where you're kind of seeing mm -hmm. and hearing kind of all his personal thoughts. It didn't. Again, it seems like a lot of hand wringing. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not. Again, I mean, I, it works uh, for what. Bernanos is trying to do. Uh, but again, it's not necessarily uh, my cup of tea, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then, and then at the end, though, again, going back out to the community, like it doesn't end in his voice. It ends oh, yeah, right, inside yeah. of him, yeah. right? Like it gives you this like epistolary add on that says, this is my perspective on him that's going out into the world. I mean, it's a real opening. Like grace is everywhere. It ends with this outward turn. From this priest so you're right it ha definitely has that you know kind of insulated feel to it aesthetically until the end until the end yeah right then yeah. and of course that line is uh is a wonderful one and one that's kind of uh kind of become the kind of almost tagline for for the novel uh, yeah. even folks that haven't read the novel uh, may be familiar with kind of that yeah um, of course the the novel was made into a pretty pretty significant movie have you seen it? Um, I haven't seen it. I haven't actually. Okay. Um, uh, but I was, I kind of read an, a number of reviews and summaries of the movie um, as I was trying to kind of refresh my memory of. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so some folks may be familiar with, with the story mm -hmm. or that last line, which I think there's a slight variation in kind of how that's presented in the movie, um, which I think is mostly just a different translation. Um, but uh yeah i mean what do you what do you think of the way that it ends grace is everywhere i i mean it, it's hard to hard to argue with um it's something that we all need to be reminded of mm -hmm. um that uh the grace of god the 
I mean, what the Calvinists would call uh, the the common grace. Uh, it, I mean, is is everywhere. It, it meets us uh, in the most mundane of uh, interactions, mm -hmm. daily interactions. Um, but on the other hand, uh, <laughs> the flip side of that is that in some senses, because grace is everywhere, um, it, it and it's encapsulated that way. You kind of, in some senses, lose the particularity of it. I mean, grace is in this relationship or this encounter or uh, this sunrise or um, uh, so. So yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's hard to argue with uh, with that idea from the theological Christian theological tradition, um, but uh, but also, uh, I think we. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, something that I say a lot is, I mean, if, if it's everybody's job, then it's nobody's job. <laughs> if grace is everywhere, then uh, we can perhaps, it becomes too easy to take it for granted, I guess is another way of saying that. Um, uh, and it really, uh, I mean, how do we keep that in the forefront of our minds um, that uh, even uh, in the face of, cancer and death in, uh, in our character, our priest's case uh, here, um, that he's, he's able to, to find, the, find the grace of God. I think that's one of the striking things um, for me about this novel it, that was striking before and continues to, to be pretty powerful for me is the way that he kind of, he, he faces his own death. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. I had a couple of friends uh, that were there were, were a couple were married um, that uh, both died of cancer in their late twenties, um, but were powerful witnesses of uh, the hope of of God's kingdom in the way that they uh, kind of uh, faced their very untimely untimely deaths. Um, so I was reminded of of their their story as uh, kind of the priest was the last the last half or so of the last chapter uh, where he's kind of uh, knowing that he's going to die and um, and yet kind of ending up, uh, as we have said, just kind of proclaiming that grace is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely not a romanticized ending when you think about it in that perspective. It's, it's Oh, no. <laughs> like he says, Lord, could I have loved it all so much? I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a sense that he's disdaining the world. There's not a sense that he's you know, he's fearing death, but that's not the only thing that he's experiencing, right? There's just so much realism that grants him that, I think, final revelation that grace is everywhere, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Well, as we close, I know that for me, the book is hopefully going to introduce churches to the necessity of reading, but that's something you've done a ton of work on. <laughs> I mean, do you have visual aids? Do you have your books to show people? Um, somewhere oh here we go i didn't ask you that ahead of time but i thought you should show people your books because this is the one um that uh is most directly uh related uh to uh to what you were describing the tradition of individualism has shaped kind of how we understand reading and the ways that we approach reading that in, in a lot of ways it is a very personal act uh, but it doesn't have to be a private act mm -hmm. um and I, I see kind of reading and conversation uh, as intertwined uh, sorts of acts. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hopeful that, I mean, of course, in churches, I mean, we're always 
reading scripture together. Um, and, and that may be one of the best sort of examples that we have of, of, of reading together in the, in the present age. Uh, but, um, but conversation, I think, along with that, um, I mean, where are the ways that we're able to uh, kind of bring ourselves uh, and our interpretations and experiences um, uh, into conversation with with the text and others others experiences and others uh, interpretations and, and how do we how do we find uh, the the grace that is everywhere yep. uh, amidst um, particularly situations in which uh, I mean there's differing uh, sorts of of interpretations and understandings and experiences. Um, yeah. And and I, I believe that uh, that we do find find grace uh, by being willing to to have that sort of vulnerability where we kind of over time and with trust. I mean, those things are very uh, very important. Uh, but uh, to to be able to share ourselves and to know and be known, yeah. uh, and I, I think there's something kind of powerfully uh, transformative about that. Um, right. And as you said, uh, reading, reading is an important part of that reading. Uh, even apart from conversation, reading is a way to uh, open us up to the experiences of others. Uh, and hopefully if we, we do that well, uh, hopefully that sort of opening up uh, kind of carries over into uh, our openness uh, to, to hear and uh, receive uh, the gift of, of others uh, experience. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, I'm hopeful that, uh, churches really, uh, take, take reading seriously. I mean, there's at least minimal ways that congregations do that already. Uh, but, uh, but just to be, to be a little bit more mindful about that and, and also to find new ways because, uh, part of the, the work of reading scripture is interpreting scripture and that's kind of opens us up to, all kinds of other sorts of reading uh, from kind of things that help us understand the text itself, but also um, ways that we uh, give us imagination for how we embody a particular text, how we live into that uh, in our particular, this, all the sorts of particularities of the times and places uh, where we are. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm excited about your book. Um, and, uh, are really, really enthusiastic uh, about uh, a fellow author that's um, kind of really encouraging uh, the practice of reading and uh, uh, taking taking that uh, seriously, uh, and as as something that really uh, can transform us as as persons and as communities. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. You just gave the the best pitch you I think you could. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah. So thank you.